Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to another exciting episode of The Stages Podcast. Today, my guest is the brilliant Amanda Muggleton. Since emigrating to Australia in 1974, Amanda has become one of our most loved and versatile leading ladies of theatre. It is a colourful career that has seen her embrace a succession of one-woman plays. Me and Jezebel, Just the Ticket. Take centre stage in a triumphant list of musicals, Annie and Eureka. Demonstrate range in drama and comedy, from Masterclass to Blythe Spirit, and express a particular vulnerability in shows like Shirley Valentine and Steaming. Extensive performance on television screens has seen her guest star in a host of our favourite shows, but perhaps she is most remembered as the lovable Chrissy Latham in the iconic series Prisoner. No matter what the performance or platform, Amanda Muggleton always delivers. She is an artist of tremendous accomplishment and our treat to welcome her to Stages. Do you, how can you test it? It's going. It's, I'm, I'm listening to you. It sounds oh. sounds very good. So we'll of just begin. You, I didn't notice you had the um... the headphones on. Dear, dear, dear. Do you, do you wear glasses? Yes. <laughs> no, I just didn't. You know, you just don't register things. Yeah. Right. Here we go. Is, why does that man look like Princess Leia? <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, lovely to have you on uh, this episode of Stages. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. We've been chatting about it for a while. So, so lovely to have you finally in this in the chair. Not a theatre question, but but can we start with, tell me about flying single-engine planes. (laughs) God. Because that's a a skill that not everybody has. No. um, I'm actually an air sign. I'm a Libran. Right. So I'm I'm very happy up in the clouds. And I think actors, you know, would love to fly in every performance that they do. Um, I had no intention of flying planes I've always loved it when I've just used a domestic flight you know I, I can't I always want to sit near the window and uh, I had a boyfriend who shall be nameless of course <laughs> <laughs> and he had a he was very you know very wealthy and he had the most magnificent yacht and I also learned to to manipulate a, a yacht as well we went, took it all the way up north to Fraser Island and and then I was actually performing Shirley Valentine in the opera house and in the dressing rooms, I don't know if they've still got it, there are phones. And I was about to go on, like it may be, he must have rung me in, in the half-hour call and said, Amanda, I'm thinking of bl- buying a plane. Do you, would you learn to fly with me? 
So I said, yeah, all right, that'd be great. <laughs> As you do, because my whole mind was, I've got to go on stage in half an hour and, and turn myself into Shirley Valentine. So I just said yes. And that was the start of me flying. I, I was um, living with him up in Queensland. We, we um, owned a big warehouse that we converted into an amazing place to live. And I, I learned out at, um, oh my God, what's the name of the airport? The airfield. It begins with A. Do you know? This is in Sydney. No, no Queensland. Queensland, right, right. Uh, I, anyway, he. Um, I went. I went in, and of course, being a blonde actress, I don't think anyone took me seriously. And they gave me this wonderful teacher called Brian Weston. His name is Brian Weston. And um, I don't think he took me very seriously at first because I was laughing and joking and mucking about. And then he really got to know me. He was a, a, a lovely old, older man, chubby and jolly, but very serious when we were in the plane, of course. And I'll never forget, um, when you first start, you do a lot of um, touch and go, it's called. And it's, they really drill it into you how to take off and land, take off and land. And I'll never forget one day, I'd taken off and he was flying, he, this was quite in, in the early days, and he was showing me this, that and the other. And you know that the tower, the, the air, airline, air, control, the, yeah. air controls, they never joke. But they all knew that Amanda Muggleton was trying to learn to fly. This is years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, we got up and I said, oh, Brian. I said, um, I, no, I was in the control seat. I was in the... I said, oh, Brian. My door's open. He said, what? I said, it hasn't closed properly. He said, oh, my God. So he got on the blower and said, CX4, you know, whatever the thing was, um, the, the number and the name of the, the plane. The call sign. The call sign. <laughs> God, you're better at it than me. It's, <laughs> it's been a, quite a few years now since I've flown. And he said, um, correction tower, uh, this will not be a touch and go. This will be a full stop. And quick as a flash came back from the the, ta the tower. They said, um, oh, "Would that be the uh, would that be the teacher trying to get out of the plane? You know, would that be? <laughs> well, how did he say it? Would that be w meaning that my teacher was so scared that I was in control that he wanted to jump out of the plane before I took off again? But I loved it. And Stephen, his name was the the man, and we flew from one side of this country to the other, and. We went from Brisbane right over to Perth, and I've never seen country like it. And of course, when you're that far out, you can fly at all sorts of heights. Yeah. And we did, 500 feet, you know. And, um, and unbeknownst to a lot of people, this country is full of airfields of all the big stations and properties, and they're desperate for you to land. And Stephen found, you know, where all the places were. And you were mentioning Lake Eyre. Yeah. We, we, we landed in the most magnificent place in Lake Eyre. And it was when there was n nothing in the uh, lakes. Right. So you could really see the colours. Wow. You know, because they're pink and green and yeah. blue and yellow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And the trees really do look like broccoli from up there. Not that there's many trees around Lake Eyre. Um, and I remember when we went round the bite we saw a, a mother whale with its baby and they were leaping out of the water and we, we were very low, we probably shouldn't have been that low but it was magnificent to see the world from up there and 
no wonder the Aboriginals do their paintings from that point of view. And it makes you think, doesn't it, how on earth could they see it up mm. from up there? Because, mm. you know, in the past they would never have gone up in planes, but they could visualise that. That bird's eye view. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's my, my flying stories. Wonderful. What, mm. What's it like that first moment when you are given control? Oh, oh. I mean, you, you are terrified when you're doing any play on the opening night, but particularly when it's a one-person show that you've got no lifeline, you're just out there on your own. And I will never forget when Brian said to me, we'd done touch and go and we'd done all sorts of, you know, flights here, there, and, and we'd done gravity things, you know, spinning and stalling and, oh. And the day he said... Right, we're, uh, we're land now, Amanda, so we landed. I that's a bit of an early lesson. And I said, what are we going to do then? He said, well, you're on your own now. And he got out and left me. And I can remember I was talking to myself the whole time, saying, you're all right, Amanda, you're all right, you can do this. You've done it a thousand times now. You can do it. And I was going through, you know, the checklist of what, what you do. And I have never been so thrilled in all my life. Amazing. What's that terrifying. adrenaline rush as well? Oh, it's huge. Similar huge. to the stage. I think it was worse. <laughs> <laughs> I do, because you are, you are literally facing death. Because yeah. if you make a mistake, it must be terrible for the teacher as well yeah. Yeah. to let you go. Yes. And I never thought I'd get the navigation under control because it's very mathematical. And I'm, I'm still to this day hopeless with maths and mm. money and mm. terrible. I think it would be even more severe flying a, a chopper. Well, I've always been told don't ever fly helicopters because you've got no hope. No. At least with um, even with a single engine, they teach you how to glide yeah. if, if the engines fail. And I only like flying Cessnas. I don't like Pipers because the, I like the high wing mm. because it gives you shade from the sun. But also you can see everything. I don't know how people... Do the uh, the pipers with the low wing horrible? Yes, yeah, claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the statistics are um, in Australian theatre, but but you would, I guess, be the one actress who has done more one woman plays than than any other that I can think of. I wish that wasn't true, but I think it is. Yeah, mm. yeah. You you are the queen of the one woman show. I don't want to be known as that. Really, piece. but it's no. such an accomplishment. It is, but I, I actually think you get a reputation of... They, people think, I don't want to work with other people, and that could not be further from mm. the truth. I, As you know, I've just been in Melbourne doing the Coral Brown This story. effing lady. This effing lady, isn't it? A wonderful <laughs> title. Um, is it actually called This Fucking Lady, or...? No, the, it comes from the book, yes. Coral Brown, This effing so lady right, okay. but of course she, she was of course. oh she was renowned for saying the f word and and of course the story is that um she was in london dressed up to the nines on her way to an opening night and she hailed a cab and a cab stopped and she got in one side and a so-called british gentleman got in the other side with his bowler hat and umbrella briefcase and the cabbie turned round and said oh i'm sorry gov i've stopped for the lady and he looks at Coral Brown and says, Oh, really? What lady? And, of course, her answer to it was, 
this fucking lady. <laughs> so she had a mouth on her that was just wonderful. And the British adored her because back in the 40s and 50s, no woman swore like that. But she said it with such a plomb that they forgave her and they thought she was hysterical. Yeah. You know, she's in Maggie Smith's book and Judy Dench's book. They all name her. And, of course, not to mention all the men, she's in all but of their books too. She was a bit of a, 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 a gal about town, An effing lady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a double entendre. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Brilliant. Because she was an Australian as well, wasn't From she? From West Footscray in right. Melbourne. Right. I, I So we're trying to get it on in Sydney, but there's, no, there's just no theatres available because of COVID. Right. Everyone is booked way ahead and you just can't get in anywhere yeah. but so. she she conquered the english stage and also hollywood and and the english films yes you know yes. she she won a bafta for uh, an englishman abroad and she went as far as she could in in uh, england and then took herself off to america and then wowed them in america and people have forgotten her but of course she ends up marrying vincent price yeah no, it was brilliant that um, that you could celebrate her in that way. Yes, um, and to do it in Melbourne was fantastic. Yeah. Because she was a J.C. Williams star. Oh, she started with J.C. Williams. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And and Vera Charles in, in that Auntie Mame yeah, Auntie film. Auntie Mame film. Ros Russell. Yes, and Dream Child, where she played the real Alice in Wonderland um, as an older woman, yep. as an 80-year-old. And, yeah. She was uh, amazing, and she she did Lady Windermere's Fan on film and um, Mrs. Warren's Profession on film, filmed by the BBC, but won awards, and people have forgotten her. It's terrible. Yeah, extraordinary talent. Don't and, do that um, with me, you know. No, they won't. <laughs> they will. <laughs> Amanda who? <laughs> <laughs> no, you were fabulous, and, and let's hope that we get to see it in Sydney. Oh, I hope so. Or further afield. Mm. But mm. you obviously have a skill set which uh, can furnish the one-person plays. You've got to be fearless. Mm. And if you go wrong, you never show it. You just have to deal with it in another way. And I think what what most actors are frightened of is completely drying and losing their way, which, you know, it's like an electrical current, the brain. If it decides to go off in another tangent, you haven't got any chance. And so you you end up talking a bit of gobbledygook and then you get back on track. Or I have been known to say, in fact, there's a wonderful story from uh, Shirley Valentine days at the um, Twelfth Night Theatre in Brisbane. Um, I was up there, you know, strutting my stuff in the first act. And suddenly the man, there was a man, the spill from the lights was coming into the audience and there was a man in the second row and he had a really bushy moustache. And I thought he started to pick his nose. And it became fascinating. And as I was watching him, I completely went. So I, I just had to admit it to the audience. I did something terrible. I said, I never lost Shirley, though. I said, oh, well, I'm ever so sorry. I said, but I don't know where I am. And they all laughed. And I said, no, don't laugh. I said, don't laugh. I really don't know where I am. I said, it's all your fault. You, yes, you, you was picking your nose. The audience went, wow, you know. I said, how do you think it is, me up here, looking at you, picking your nose, no wonder I've lost me place. Now, settle down, all of you. I said, we're going to have to go back a bit. Now, does anyone know 
who I am. So they all said, yes, you're Shirley Valentine. I said, oh, that's good, good. Uh, and now, does anyone know where I am? And they all said, Liverpool, Liverpool. I said, yes, it's good, this is good. Now, can anyone remember what did I just say? And some bright spark said, yes, you asked us where you were. Instead of, you know, I thought someone might remember where, where we were in the play. You lost your place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it was terrible. So at the end of the play, I, I got a full standing ovation, which that play got most nights. And I made them sit down. I said, I, I'm so sorry, ladies and gentlemen. What you witnessed tonight was an actor in strife. I said, I really did forget my lines and I said and I blamed you and I have to exonerate you because this man I realised after a while he wasn't picking his nose he was you know how men stroke their nose but in my with my bad eyesight and the spill of the light it looked like he had a finger (laughs) up there you know (laughs) and and I said I am so sorry that I did that to you I said "I, I needed to do something to get myself out of trouble and I used you and I'm so very sorry I said, if, if you'd like another couple of tickets for another night, because he must have hated me so much, yeah. but he didn't go. He didn't leave in the interval. Yeah. Anyway, um, at the end of m- making the speech, they all stood up again. <laughs> you know, you, sometimes it's a win-win situation, but the, the worst thing you can do is to freeze and t- tell yourself you don't know where you are and you panic. Mm. And some actors walk off stage and go and ask the... Stage, uh, stage manager, manager. Mm. or they say line mm. I never say line if there's any young actors out there don't ever say line I always say yes <laughs> <laughs> and the audience very rarely know yeah. that you're actually calling you, you teared up with your stage manager yeah. and you say if ever I say yes of course the problem comes if there's a yes in the play <laughs> no no but they know you know you, your stage manager knows when there's a yes mm. Is it a lonely experience? It's awful. Yeah. Because p- part of being in a play is the camaraderie oh, with, your, with your castmates. If you can yeah. imagine, I, I go to work every night. I go into a room on my own. There's no one to say, well, have you had, you know, what, what did you do today? What did you have for breakfast, lunch, dinner? What are we going to do afterwards? Yeah. You go out there and it's, it, there's no doubt about it. It's frightening because you never know what you're going to face and very often in a one-person play you do get drunks or you get people who feel that you are talking directly to them because with Shirley Valentine you you and and with the one I've just done the Coral Brown you know that you ask questions and there's always some bright spark that calls back and if it if they call back with the wrong thing you have to deal with it yeah. so it's almost like a stand-up comedy routine and people say, why don't you do stand-up? I think that must be the most frightening thing. Mm. I th- I'm really in awe of, of comedy. They're very courageous, aren't yes. they? Yeah. Yes, yeah. But it is incredibly lonely. And when you have a wonderful night, you go back to your dressing room and there's not a soul there. Eventually the stage manager will come in and say, oh, that was good, your timing was good tonight. Or, you know, you knocked three minutes off or you... You put seven minutes on tonight, and I turned to them and said, "Well, that's because they were laughing, or you know, you've always got some excuse." But it's awful. And as I'm getting older, Peter, I'm dreading doing 
more of them. I, I want to be in a company. Some of the best experiences I've had has, has been in big musicals mm. because it's such fun. Yeah. So I, I long... I, the, the last play I did with um, some people... <laughs> some fellow actors was the Helena Rubinstein but that was virtually like a one that was person, the ensemble so, uh, the yeah, ensemble yeah. yes right yeah. um, can we talk about Shirley Valentine um, because that that was your first uh, one woman show uh, I believe it was yeah, yes yeah. yes and it, was, it was an extraordinary uh, feat um, well, it learning that it was two and a half hours long because back then yeah. that we all dealt with intervals. Right. I mean, if you notice more and more, there are no intervals. Yes, it's running right There's, through for you, hour and 15 yes, or something. Yes, please go mm. to the bathroom before you come in here yeah. because it's 90 minutes or mm. something. Or, And, you know, little did we know, the the old adage used to be a fast show is a good show. Now it's so fast, you've barely got time to do, to do anything. Before you know it, you're off. Yeah. You're on and then you're off. And it, I think it's because of the computer world and the telephone world. You know, people are, are always shorter concentration sense. What do they? What's the Tinder thing? You know, they yeah, swipe, swipe left, swipe, left right. swipe right. What's next? You know, they yeah. can't wait to get on to the the next thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's very sad because people are losing their concentration. I think they're not able to give their commit. full attention and commit. Mm. Mm. Did Shirley originate in Perth? Yes, yeah. for the Hole in the Wall Theatre. Right. Um, and, and did you take that to them, or did was that no, Ray Omadai? No, Ray, Raymond Omadai. Right. He rang my agent and said, um, "I want Amanda Muggleton to read this play." I'd never heard of him or the Hole in the Wall Theatre. Or and Shirley? Did you know of Shirley? No. no? Right. And um, I want her to read this play and ring us and tell us if she's interested in doing it. And believe it or not, there's only two plays in my life that I have read the script, unless it's Shakespeare and you know what's going to happen, but when you first get a script, you always know if it's going to be wonderful if you cannot stop turning the page. I have taken sometimes two days to read some scripts or um, things that people send me because it's just not right in my head, like it's not been written smoothly enough or... The character doesn't ring true. Shirley Valentine and Terence McNally's Masterclass, I will never forget. You, when, you, when you read a play like that, your heartbeat actually goes faster because you can see yourself on stage before you even turn the page. You just know that it fits and you just can't wait to get out there and do it. It's the most incredible feeling when you get a good script. I'm saying it's only two. If I probably sit here long enough, I'll think of some more. But I do remember both of those plays. Um, Ray Omadai was an extraordinary theatre practitioner. I I had the joy of working with him as well. Yes. And I remember him telling me in rehearsal once, we were talking about Shirley, and um, because, of course, in your production, Shirley appears naked in the (laughs) second act. And (laughs) he said that that was your idea. It was totally my idea. And he was quite shocked. And I said, but look, Raymond, don't you think it would be a wonderful shock to the audience for the second act? Because all the way through the first act, she, she is literally a frumpy little housewife in a dowdy dress and she's cooking chips and egg for her husband. And, and she's telling you the story of her life, which isn't, you know, fantastic. It's funny. 
And of course, the first line of the second act is, the first act is in Liverpool, and the second act, the curtain goes up and you're in Greece. And the first line is, I bet you didn't recognise me, did you? <laughs> and usually, I mean, Pauline Collins did it, um, Paula Wilcox did it, um, all sorts of people have done it here. Um, Sharon Millerchip did it quite recently, uh, Denise Roberts. They all just wear a swimming costume or a bikini with a sarong or a sarong. And it just made such sense because what happens to Shirley is that she becomes a new woman when yeah. she goes to Greece yeah. and she discovers herself. And so I said, do you think I should do it naked? And of course he jumped at it. He said, oh, Amanda, it would be wonderful. And of course it brought the house down every time I did it. I was only naked for maybe five or six seconds yeah. and then I put a beautiful dressing gown on or I wore some beautiful thing I can't remember now but well, I should remember it was in my repertoire for ten years yeah. ten years ten years mm. wow that's fabulous yeah. you were asked Shirley Valentine oh no I couldn't do it now <laughs> <laughs> would I take my clothes off now <laughs> well, well another show that you were vulnerable in shall we yes. say was steaming so I'll just go back the first time I ever ever took my clothes off mm. was in a production at something called the Why Not Theatre in Melbourne which was in between La Mama and the Pram Factory it was a tiny little theatre which I worked I worked very extensively at the La Mama and the Pram Factory but people forget that people think you just went into prisoner and you became everyone became Chrissy Latham Chrissy Latham yeah. but that's not you know I really paid my dues long before prisoner and it was the most fantastic production of Macbeth. Um, Ian McFadgen directed it and conceived the idea. And Ian McFadgen ran the co the comedy company yes. with, you know, Who's Kylie married Moore, married to um, Marianne, Marianne Fay. Yeah. And uh, we're still in contact, actually. Uh, Ian McFadgen, he's written a wonderful play which I really want to do. Um, I'm, I'm not going to tell you too much of how it was the play because I really want someone to do it again one day and maybe McFadden should be the one to direct it but in the scene when Macbeth comes back from the, the wars were you it, playing Lady M? Uh, of course yes, yeah. yeah and he we I played her like a femme fatale a complete sex bomb which makes it so much harder when Macbeth turns on her, of course, because she, they both can't have children. And you, get, you got the feeling that they were a really hot couple. You know, sex was absolute paramount. And then, of course, when it all starts to go wrong, when she tells him to kill the, the king, and he then hates her. So in the mad scene... It, oh, I won't tell you too much. But in, in the scene when he comes back from, from the war, there was the most amazing scene up on a plinth, you know, with these wonderful red sheets. And I was in a, a, an amazing dressing gown. It was only a back view, and it just slid off my shoulders and dropped to the ground, and then the lights went up. So that's the first time I ever did it. Shirley was the... No, steaming was the, the next one, and then Shirley. Right. But steaming, yes. What about steaming? A great was, play. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, great play. But um, how do you begin to... It was obviously easy for you or it was, it was no. tough to get your gear off? No. no. I mean, I, I did the, the uh, Macbeth 
but it was such a quick thing. Yeah, but steaming, what, you know, did the whole night. Yeah. And you naked front and back and sideways. It was very, you felt very vulnerable. Um, what most people don't know is that um, I started life as a, a ballet dancer. I, I was at the Royal Academy of Dance in London, and then I won a scholarship to the Royal Ballet School. But at the age of 14, they thought I was anorexic, but it, it wasn't that. I was. They discovered that I had three kidneys and two ureters. And what people don't know is how confronting it was for me to take my clothes off. Because, obviously, to this day, I've still got a scar. huge scar right. where they took the kidney out. Yep. And when they, they thought, they didn't realise I had an extra ureter... They actually told my mother she was having twins when I when she was pregnant, and only I popped out. And when they took the third kidney out, it was perfectly healthy. There wasn't anything wrong with it, but it had the, an extra ureter. So I had three ureters, but instead of the ureter going into the bladder and out, it was slowly killing me because the kidneys make poison, mm-hmm. and it was going all all through me. So I woke up with a scar not only along my side but one from my navel down as well. Wow. And so I, you know, I did it with such confidence, but I remember when we first opened, I was at the, um, it was at the Theatre Royal, and I went to those makeup shops where they sell makeup for people that have got birthmarks and strawberry marks on their face, and I covered my scars like you wouldn't believe, and on the opening night... Rodney Fisher, who was, you know, the most wonderful director, brought this chap round, and that, you know, I was so cocky and so sure of myself, and he said, "Oh, I love the play." He said, "Magnificent," and he said, "May I say, your—I always call it my ectoplasm, but it's—it's <laughs> it's like an ec, ec something yeah. when they take the kidney out." He said, "That's the most mon- marvelous." Uh, scar who did that and I looked at him and I thought if only you knew how long I had been in the dressing room covering it with you know it's like a paste yes you know that's to cover uh really bad birthmarks they use this it's really thick thick stuff and of course didn't work at all so after that I thought well, sod it, you know, what's the point of doing all that? I won't bother anymore. So, but it's it's always confronting. And even to this day, when I've got um, a, a, a new love interest, I st- still freak out the first time they, they touch me or see me naked. I think it's why I didn't use, lose my virginity till I was 24 because I was so paranoid about... About the scar, mm. yeah. And people might laugh because people think, oh, shit, that's that actress that always takes her clothes off and they think you're some kind of sex bomb. And underneath it all, you're incredibly shy. Mm. And I think it's why I throw myself into other people so much in order to forget things like that. Mm. Mm. So it's it's strange, isn't it? I'm being very open here. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) No, that's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Mm. I mean, why... You know, why do we become actors? Why uh, and the attraction is so you can become Somebody other else. people and, and get Maybe away from Maybe I yourself really sometimes. don't like myself. Oh. You, uh, What's not much uh, to like? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> no, but there is that thing of you know. Maybe you don't like yourself, and that's yeah. why you you do throw yourself into being other people. Yeah. I mean, there's so many actors that I see play themselves all the time, and I don't call that acting. No, no. 
we're, we're chameleons, aren't we? We're, I think so. I yeah. think you should be. You yeah. should be able to be... I know Rodney Fisher said to me once, you know, Amanda, every time you, you play a, a, a new role, it just isn't you. You know, you become someone else. And he said, that's why I think people don't recognise that you were Maria Callas and Helen... Helena Rubinstein and Shirley Valentine and educating Rita and Lady Macbeth and Isabella from Measure Measure from Measure from Me- for Measure. You know, sometimes you disguise yourself so much that it's to to the detriment of you. Yeah. Whereas I'm not going to mention any names, but there's a, lo- a lot of actors, and I just see them doing the same old thing it's boring. over yeah. and over again. Mm. But casting people in this country seem to like that. It's easy for them, I suppose. I don't know what yeah. it is. Yeah. But there, it's predictable. A role like Maria Callas, mm. a real person, mm. how do you prepare a role like that? Oh, there is so much material on her. She mm. was a gift, an absolute gift. I watched all her interviews... I listened to all her interviews. I read books on her. I have I have the most amazing library on her in my home and I cannot give them away. And at, at one point, I, I felt that um, life was imitating art. For me, because I told you about the rich guy who had the aeroplane and the yacht and we went all over the world, but yeah. he wanted me, he wanted all or nothing. And that's why, in the end, I, I left him. He was your Onassis. He, that's what I'm yeah, saying to you. Yeah. It was life imitating art. And um, I remember when I opened in, in uh, the first night, I received a letter from him, and it was a, a very long letter. And he rang me and said, please do not open the letter. Please wait till I get there, and I want it back. So I did the opening. I did the preview, that's right. And I was staying with Andrew Ross, the the pianist, who's Barry Humphrey's pianist in all his things, and the stage manager, because, you know, we were all staying together. And the stage manager knew I'd got this, because Stephen and I were having trouble, because he just didn't want me to go away. He didn't want me to do what I do fell in love with me when he saw me do Shirley Valentine and then did everything to make me stop acting very very odd men are very odd (laughs) (laughs) Um, and because I don't think women do that I think women fall in love with men and they accept them for exactly what they are so if they are used car salesmen that's their lot you know and if that that means that they go away women put up with that but men they men most men in my life have wanted me there they want positions. Much. They want positions, their, yeah. yes. Especially when they're wealthy as well. Mm. Anyway, it was. Um, I went to bed that night um, feeling really high because the play is such a, an amazing play by Terence McNally and the opera singers were so magnificent in it and Andrew playing the piano. And, but at the back of my head I thought, there's that letter, there's the letter, the letter, the letter, what's he said, what's he said. And eventually I opened the letter before he got there, and it was terrible. Right. He said, I'm fed up with playing, playing second fiddle. Um, 
and he mentioned a few names which I won't mention but he said you're on a merry-go-round with this one and that one and the other one and you're never going to get off it and I thought well no you know you that's that's what I do I am I'm an actor I I can't do in I can't and won't do anything else mm. so well how did we get talking about that Preparing the role for of masterclass. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. I, I was like a sponge with Callas. I, I really sympathised with her, and the way Onassis took her into all those parties and kept her up late yeah. in smoke-filled rooms yeah. because that's what people did back then. And then, of course, she started life with Meneghini, who was an absolute user. He married her when she was really overweight but he had the money to have her uh, massaged and and diet dietitians coming in of course to me what did kill her in the end she would eat so much steak tartare which is raw meat and she eventually got a tapeworm oh right. mm. and they're very difficult to get rid of especially back then and of course if you, you remember her being very overweight yeah. and then she lost so much weight she wanted to be like Audrey Hepburn which is when she used to put all her hair back, back in that yeah. style that Audrey Hepburn had and she lost so much weight because what happens with tapeworms is that they eat everything you eat so that your body you don't not, get no nourishment yeah, no, no yeah. nutrition at all yeah. and then if you starve yourself they start eating you Yeah. so you know, I'm not saying that that's how she died, but her heart and lungs were definitely weakened. The lungs from all that heavy breathing to mm. push that magnificent voice out. Mm. And her heart was broken anyway by Onassis marrying Kennedy, yeah. Jackie Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. But who, who was at Onassis, Onassis's bedside when he was dying? It wasn't Jackie. No. It was Callous. Maria. Mm. 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 And you, you, as a performer, you, an actor, you set out not to give an impersonation, but it's capturing the essence of that, oh, that yes. woman. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the two arias that you have to learn, and you, you speak as she's singing, that was Rodney Fisher's idea to, to go to the absolute rhythm of La Sonambula and Verdi's Macbetto. he made me listen to her singing and as the words were coming out of my mouth I had to have an ear on what she was singing and the rhythm she was speaking in um, or singing in and then my speech had to match the rhythm of the music which was incredibly difficult to do but when it worked when I finished a sentence and she she finished a phrase at exactly the same time it was magic it was magic and it's so exciting. I love theatre like that. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very exciting. Mm. Um, mentioning your breakup reminded me that... Um, Which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, part- There's been several. <laughs> partners who don't understand actors. Yes. I mean, as actors, um, we, as partners, we need very special people who understand the psychology of an actor, mm. um, the, the ups and the downs, yes. the, the, the touring. The, yes the very unique uh, occupation that it is mm. and lifestyle that it, that, it, mm. uh, that it needs. And, you know, sometimes partners can really get in the way. Yeah. I'll never forget the opening night and Stephen insisted on flying in. And it was certainly, it was one hell of a night. 
it blew the audience out of their seats. And the party afterwards, you know when the party goes well at the end. It's a good Nobody show. wanted to go home. Yeah. And he, he came in to the party and it was like a huge weight on my leg, you know, get off my leg, <laughs> dragging him around and introducing him to, because I knew he didn't really want to be there. And I, although he'd fallen in love with me as an actor, mm. it was the very thing that ended, ended the relationship yeah. because he, he said in the letter, you know, it's like you belong to everyone else. But it's when a partner recognises it's your That's, opening night, it's your moment to shine, yeah. I'll let you go and enjoy it. Uh, no, do you yeah. know what? It yeah. got to about 11.15 and he said, are you ready to come home now, Amanda? And I said, but Stephen, he said, no, I want to go. And like a little mouse, unlike the tigress that Callus was, and I should have been a tigress, I should have said to him, bugger off, I'm, I'm going to enjoy myself. Mm. I went with him and, of course, I, we got back to the hotel and I was so angry. I thought, what the hell am I doing in a hotel room with this grumpy man? Yeah. He was a lot older than me as well. Right. That was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Royal Ballet School, you were there as a student. Yes. So did it look like you were going to become a ballerina Yes, my, my mother was a, a dancer. Right. Um, and so I twinkled toed off in her direction. Yeah. And it, even when I left... Uh, the, the Royal Ballet School and went back into a, a big London comprehensive I never stopped doing my ballet class every Wednesday and every Saturday and still when I went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama I did my ballet class all the time right. I never lost the passion for it and all the I, it's, extraordinary discipline that comes with being a dancer yes yeah. and I think that's the discipline you need also when you're learning a one person show mm getting harder and harder yeah <laughs> it's a muscle isn't it that, it that, is a uh, muscle yeah, but I yeah. hope I you never get Alzheimer's you know because you know you keep you're keeping that muscle going all the time yes yes so lucky to to have the opportunity to learn such beautiful things what were the artistic influences in your in your childhood were you going to the West End to see theatre yes yeah my sister-in-law took me to um the sound of music I can remember that and then of course in England we had pantomimes all the time and that was such fun yeah. and colour and movement um, my mother and father used to have the Reader's Digest music collection you know you could join the Reader's Digest what was it called the music record club yeah. and so we would get music coming all the time and I never remember my house being quiet when I was growing up we always had wonderful music on and I think that influenced me a lot because I was always dancing around the house you know right. pretending to be a ballet dancer yeah was your father in the arts in any way no, or did he no, sing no he or? should have been yeah. he he was a wonderful artist and he used to send me letters and poems he'd make up poems on by, uh, with the drop of a hat and all around the poem or the letter were little drawings of but of course he was from he's 96 now that's extraordinary and yeah. he, he his parents he wanted to go to art school if the truth be known right and uh, they said oh you can't do, can't do that you can't make money through art no um if you've got a flair we'll send you to architect school <laughs> <laughs> and of course he hated it right 
Because what? it's all lines, you know, there's nothing artistic. Well, no. there is about the creation, yes. but until you become an architect that can design a beach house or a beautiful building or a house, but it's all lines and maths and horrible. Boring. So he was literally a square peg in a round hole. So what did he do? Well, the war came right. as well with, with both mum and dad. Mum was the dancer and she was a performer. There's all sorts of photos of her dancing in all this wonderful clothes and... And um, they got married very young, and uh, the war broke out, and so it put pay to all of their lives. And then my brother Simon came along, and then I came along. Uh, Dad ended up being... He worked for Kodak, which is no more, the the film people. Uh, But they never stopped doing, like, a double act. They were always... Mum was always tap dancing in, in the kitchen, and... She used to say things like, yes, he he thinks he's funny, but I'm I'm working him with my foot or something like that. You know, they were a fu- funny couple. Because yeah. mum died in 2000 and my dad never got over it. None of us got over it because no. she was such a character. Yeah. She was hysterically funny. Wow. And he's very funny. He's got a very quick sense of humour. And the one lines that come out are just amazing. It, the, the two friends that he has dinner parties for... Because he's still living at home. He's still yeah. living at home. He, yeah. he shops and cooks and washes and That's irons. Great. That's what you want And parent, walks everywhere, yeah. yes. Yeah, I, if I'm wearing high heels, not so much now because he's 96 now, but I used to go home every, every year. It's terrible that I can't get there at the moment because I'm so scared something's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I used to have to say, Dad, for God's sake, slow down. I can't keep up with you because he walks so fast. But that's what's keeping him going. And in his flat in the Barbican, there's two sets of stairs. So I honestly believe that that's what's keeping him going because going up and down stairs every day, bathrooms and and, uh, bedrooms were downstairs and living was up. So every time he wanted to go to the bathroom, he had to go down and then up again. And I swear to God, that's what keeps you going because you've got to keep the heart pumping. The heart pumping, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keeping his legs strong as well. Yes. Yeah, that's great. That's mm. great. So, so drama. When did that enter your life? Was that at school? Well, yeah, when I had to stop doing the dancing, yeah. um, my parents. My mother was a bit of a communist, I suppose. She thought that everyone. She thought it was very elitist. You know, um, what's it called? Um, the ballet school. Where is it? In, in um, I want to say Hollywood. What's it called? It's Holly something. Maybe I am getting else. No, no, in London. Yes. Is it? What's it? Holl- Holland Park. Holland Park. Uh, Holland Park yeah. School. Um, Hollywood. <laughs> That's for <laughs> thinking. Hooray um, for Holland yeah. Park. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, I, I, mum, it was mum that said, I want you to go to a comprehensive school. Because back then it was either the grammar school or an ordinary secondary school but the comprehensive had just come in and the government was throwing money at these new concepts which were so what's the definition of a comprehensive well, school well I'm, I'm i'm going to tell yeah, you yeah great yeah <laughs> <laughs> um they they want it, they were bigger like a grammar school or a secondary school only had maybe 5 or 600 yeah. people but these comprehensives they put you all in together so it's a real mixed bag a mixed pot right. and it was fantastic and 
they threw so much money in there. You, you could learn any musical instrument. You, everybody had a computer. Uh, it had a fully equipped theatre with lighting. And, and so I went to Sydenham Girls Grammar, um, High School. And that's where I met Antonio Bagshaw, who was my English teacher. Right. And because I'd come from all the dancing, I had this thing in me that wanted to perform. And this teacher noticed that. And so then she started putting me into the debating society and the poetry competitions. And, of course, at the end of each year, the school play or musical, yeah. and I, got, I always got the lead. And that's, what, that's how I got from school into the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Right. And that, so, that was a three-year course with the Guildhall? Yes, yeah. yes. And then I did um, a fourth year at Trent Park College of Education, which was at a place called Cock Fosters, <laughs> <laughs> which is like the last, the last station on the Northern Line. So was that to become a teacher? Yes. Yeah. My parents said, do all this, Manda. Get somebody but, to fall back on. Yes. 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 Get a safety net. Yeah. So I did. So I'm actually, you know, completely qualified to teach. And... Uh, Oh, I remember I did my teaching practice at, at Basildon in Basil, Basil, Basildon High School. Oh my God, it was so rough. And of course, going there and talking, t- talking with a plum in my mouth, they really took the piss out of me. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that, it's good, you know. You have to deal with things like that. Yeah. So I, I feel very blessed that I went to the Guildhall. It was it was a wonderful, mm. wonderful score. And of course, it, I had the music as well as. The, the theatre and the ballet because there was a very good ballet mistress that came every Wednesday and Saturday. Right. Who was in your year at Guildhall? Well, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber was in the music course, I remember that. Right. Um, no one that you would know here. Right. But but working, gigging actors yes. in the UK. Yeah. yeah, they're all... Actually, not, not a lot of them are working. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, with drama school? Who continues to do it five years later, yes, ten years later? yes. They all fall 40 years off. later, yeah. Yeah, and you, I keep hearing some of them are dead. Right. It's horrible. You get to an age, don't you, where people are falling off the perch. Whatever happened to Lloyd Webber? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was a funny-looking thing. You used to see him walking around the corridor, you know, with this kind of droopy bottom lip. And, and that bowl mm-hmm. cut. Yeah, yeah, terrible hair. <laughs> mm. So Australia, how, how did you become? Oh, yes, well, that's weird. Um... Whilst I was at the Guildhall, I met this lovely man called Paul Nyman, and his father was um, Alfred Nyman, who was a, a great composer. And there was um, Paul joined something called the Early Music Consort with Phil Pickett, who I, I think Phil has now died, but he started the Early Music Consort. And um, Paul came to see, I was in the Chenchi. And Antonin Arto uh, play, and somehow he found out that I was um, a dancer, or had been a dancer, and he said, "Look, we're, we we want some actors to come and join us in the early music consort and do dancing," and so me and a few of the others in my year, we went along with Phil Pickett and and we did this. We'd, we'd do things like the Galliard and the Volta and all the, all the dances, the medieval yeah. uh, dancing. And then it turned into, well, why don't we do some poetry or 
do some Ben Johnson, do some Shakespeare, you know, and they'd play the music and we'd do it. And we took it all around the um, colleges and we, we went, we did a show at the Southern Polytechnic and in that, in one of the shows, I did a mime piece. I can't even remember what it was. Um, and it brought the house down. And there was this chap called John Reese, who was a composer, and he approached me at the end of the show and said, where did you learn to do mime? I said, well, I haven't, you know, I've just, uh, I've been a dancer, I was at the Royal Ballet School, blah, blah. He said, look, I've written this piece of um, music theatre called Volt Fass, about face, and I'm looking for a female mime. Um... I've already got a chap called Mark Furness and John Trigger. They were they were already doing mime in London, particularly Mark Furneaux was very famous. And I had to go and audition for these two blokes who... I, I remember it was in the old Kent Road, which was a really rough place to go. And I went and they said... And Mark Furness had a cigarette, you know, right down... What do you call that? In the crevice of the fingers. In the crevice fingers, of the yeah, fingers. Yeah. And he smoked like that. So, <laughs> And he said, well, what can you do? And so I did the little bit of mine that I'd done for the the um, early music console. And they said, where have you trained? And I said, the, the ballet school. And they said, you're very good. You're very um, agile and, and fit. And they said, look... This thing is going on, and now I always used to. I always thought it went on at the Royal Festival Hall, but my father's got a better memory than me. It wasn't the Royal Festival Hall; it was something called the Playhouse. And so we did it there. We got wonderful reviews, and someone from the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust saw that show, and they took Mark Furness, John Trigger, and I from there out to Australia. Um, but before we did that, we the the three of us got on quite well. I was really young; they were much older than me. But we got um, Mark Furness uh, was infatuated with Commedia dell'arte, and he said, "Look, we want to do this show called the Chescu Rari show, meaning Chescu was the name of his clown, yeah. and the Rari was Rari, you know, a very rare show, and it all came out of a great big box." A, a big wicker basket like you'd get in a, an old theatre and he said we're going up to, to do the Harrogate Festival that's where the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust saw us so it, wasn't, it wasn't the um, right. it was the, it was the Commedia yeah. show that they saw and they said would you bring this to Australia and that's what brought me to Australia Wow! and we started in Perth and we did workshops in mime and juggling and fire eating and stilt walking and you name it, because it, it, I was a complete soubrette. I played the piano accordion and danced and sang, and I had a big fat suit that I, you know, I changed clothes all the time. We had um, a dancing gorilla. It sounds crazy now, but I was... Oh, sounds wonderful. I was Columbine, yeah. and Mark was Piero, and John Trigger was Ali Keen. Ali Kino. And oh. we started in Perth, and we took... Um, that we had auditions... And we were looking for three extra to come and do the whole tour around Australia. Right. And that was such fun in Perth. There's photos of me in stilts and in the fat suit in Perth in some archives. And 
So that's what started it all off. And uh, we went from Perth to Adelaide to all the festivals. Perth Festival, Adelaide Festival, Mumba in Melbourne, Royal Easter Show in Sydney. And then we did something at the Civic Theatre in Newcastle. The only place we didn't go to was Queensland. We just, they didn't, they weren't interested in us (laughs) at all back then. This is 1975. And then the best part was we went Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, Catherine, Darwin. Brilliant. I had never seen country like it. Yeah, that orange, orange sound. Oh, and I I couldn't get Australia out of my mind. It was a six-month tour, went back to England, and I just had itchy feet. I just thought, I don't want to be here with the clouds touching my shoulders and the rain and the drizzle and the cold. I want the space, the blue sky, the sun, the warmth, the people. I fell in love with Australians. I just thought they're so natural and there's no bullshit with them. Had you and met someone or it was well, just... <laughs> what have you got on your nose? I don't have anything like that. I just... Yeah, what pulled somebody back to a new country? And I just thought... Well, I did meet someone. Right. And together we went back to England. Right. And I got him into something called the um, Caricature Theatre that was in Cardiff in Wales. I got a job, again, as it's a, it was England's largest puppet company. Wow. And that's another thing that I would tell any aspiring actors to do. If you can put a character into an inanimate object, you can, I think you can do anything. If you yeah. can ma- I could make that teacup talk for you, you yeah. know. It's it's a very wonderful gift to have because you're it, it's putting your whole being and imagination into a cup. Yeah. And um, it, uh, I got Michael a job as he was a very great artist, and he was doing all the uh, sets and painting all the the puppets and the costumes. And it was puppetry of every kind. It wasn't marionettes. Oh yeah. no, we were the puppets. You know, we did lo- a lot of black theatre. And and we had um, puppets that were attached to us again, and we were all in black. You know, it was very. It doesn't sound like anything now, but back then it, it really was. And we we did a, a thing called Panache on the BBC that was all filmed, and and then Michael said, "Let's do the overland trip to Australia," and that's what we did. Wow. And that was in '75. We we went from London to Hull. Hull to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Germany, Germany all through uh, Switzerland, all through Italy, uh, Brindisi over to Corfu, Corfu right the way up to Thessalonica, Thessalonica we got a train, did the train journey into Turkey and then we got on magic buses, that was right through the Khyber Pass, you know, I mean we're talking very scary times. You've been Uh, everywhere. Yeah, and then we got to Pakistan and Michael got really sick because we we ran out of money in Afghanistan and we sold our blood. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) The things you do. The things you do, And sadly, um, Michael got some dirty needle or something. And and, uh, he, he, by the time we got through to uh, Pakistan, he was really sick. And we, by the time we got back to Australia, his father then flew us from um, India. We got through to India and we were meant to go India and then all through Asia and it just didn't happen. Right. Um, and he flew us from 
Singapore. We got to Singapore, and then his father had to fly us home. And when we got home, Michael's blood, white blood vessel count was like 17,000. And I believe it should be between three and seven. Wow. And it was going rapidly towards leukemia. He'd got a dirty needle or yeah, something. Yeah. So I have seen a lot of the world. Yeah. But I still love Australia best. Yeah. I, I feel so blessed to have been here. I've been here nearly 50 years now. That's wonderful. Mm. Wonderful. Did, did it take much for your career in stage and television to take off? No. Um, as I said, the first thing that happened was that I, I, I took my qualifications to something called the Bouverie Street Theatre in Carlton. And, oh, first of all, um, Michael and I went to live with his uh, family and they were living in, um, I want to say Mount Gam- Gambier, but it wasn't that. Is Mount Gambier in Victoria? It is, isn't yes. it? And one day, um, Ray, his father, was going into town uh, and I got fed up with just hanging about the house. I said, Michael, I've, I want to get a job. We can't keep living off your parents. He was quite happy. He was an artist, you know, quite happy just to stay there and paint. And so I went in with Ray and he said, well, what are you coming in for? I said, I'm going to get myself a job today. And he said, oh, yes, how are you going to do that? I said, I'm going straight to the education department. Found out where they were, went in there, and I said, have you got such a thing as a theatre and education team here? And the word went back, you know, from the desk, you know, hey, do we have anyone, do, do we have any theatre and education? And, of course, some bright spark at the back said, oh, yeah, there's that weird place in Bouverie Street. So they gave me the address, and I went there. All, this was all in the one day. Yeah. And that's where I met Ian McFadden. Wow. He was the uh, director yeah. of, we were called the dog team. Yeah. And I walked in, um, Graham Scott was the director of the whole thing, and I met him first, and I said, look, um, I, I'm an actress and uh, I'm a mime artist, and I've studied at, um, with Fialka and the, at the cockpit in London and blah, 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 you know. And he said, well, look, you, you are incredibly lucky because the team, the dog team, are actually here, and they're in a room getting ready to write a new show. And I walked in, and, and there was Maggie McCluskey. She, was, she became a very famous writer. She died in a fire, which is terrible. Uh, Gerard Matty, um, Ian McFadden, and two other people um, who I can't remember. That's terrible. Oh, I can. Mike Bishop was there. He's, he's very well known now. He's doing the Harry Potter play, Yes, yeah. he is, mm. yeah. He's a gorgeous man. Um, and it was quite confronting because it was a table like this and they said, well, tell us about yourself. Tell us something about yourself. And I said, well, do you want to know how I lost my virginity? <laughs> and I told them, which was a, a beautiful story, yeah. but funny as well. And um, McFadden said, you're in, you've got the job. So I then got myself back to 3AW, which is where Michael's father worked. Right. He was... Ray Chapman, he was the head of 3AW and went back and he came out and he said well how did you go? I said I start next Monday. He looked at me and he said you don't. I said I do he said what are you going to do? I said I'm in a theatre in education team Brilliant. so that was in Melbourne and I, I lived and stayed in Melbourne and that's how I got from the uh, McFadden was always doing things uh, other things he you know he's a wonderful mind wonderful mind mm. 
And then he said, I want you to play Lady Macbeth in this production. And that's where Andrew Kay, yeah. who's now employed me so many times, he, he produced me in Shirley Valentine, The Book Club, uh, Masterclass, um, the Coral Brown show. So many, I've worked with him so many times. And he's never forgotten me playing Lady Macbeth in Melbourne. To this day, he always says, I've never seen a Lady Macbeth played like that. And it's... So, and and then from the Why Not Theatre, I went to La Mama and did several plays at, at La Mama, then the Pram Factory, and then the Melbourne Theatre Company. Right. And Chrissy Latham must have done wonderful things for your profile. Uh, steaming came. Right. Before before, Prisna, right. before. Am I right? No, hang on. No, Steaming was... Uh, Prisoner was 79, Steaming was 81, 82. What, how did that happen? That's right. I was in. I was in prisoner. That's right. Yeah. And the, um, apparently they were, they were auditioning every girl for the lead, playing Josie, and Rodney Fisher just wasn't pleased with. It. He said, "They're almost there, but they're not what I'm looking for." He was then. He then had to go to Perth, um, and he was directing the man from Muckinuppin in Perth, yep. and he was living with a family, who were crazy about prisoner and Rodney saw me playing the Cockney Tart in prisoner and said who's that girl she's perfect for Josie I mean these things these things don't happen now I wish they did but it doesn't happen like that now they don't think oh she was good in masterclass let's put her in this or she was good in Shirley let's put in that you'll just you do a big hit and you're just left to blow in the wind it's terrible Um, and so we had the whole Household saying, "Watch the credits at the end. Who is she? Who is she?" And it's you know, the credits went so fast, but he he remembered it being a six-syllable name, Amanda Muggle Tom. And so he got on to um, Wilton Morley, yep. Robert Morley's son, and said, "I've seen the girl. She's in prisoner. You have to watch it and get her name properly and get find out who her agent is." And that's how I got. Steaming, and of course the 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 audition for steaming. I was shaking in my boots. I thought, oh my god, are they good? Because I I had seen steaming. For some reason, I'd taken my mother and father because <clears throat> all you heard about in London at that time was this fantastic show called Steaming. And whenever I went home, I'd buy tickets for the theatre. I said, we're going to see steaming tonight. And of course, when we saw it, there were all these naked women. So I knew what the play, and, you know, when my agent rang and said, somebody wants to see you for Josie and Steaming, it was like a thing going, actually, Steaming, that script was another one that I read. It just read so smoothly, so brilliantly. You knew it was going to work. Because there's plenty that you get and you think, oh, I don't think this is going to work, but you have to do it because you need the work. Yeah. Um, and I thought... Dear God, please don't let it be some director who's going to make me take my clothes off. Because you always hear about the oh, casting in, in an audition. Yeah, yeah I had yeah, to yeah, go and yeah. meet um, Rodney Fisher, and I didn't know who Rodney was at that time. Yeah. And it was in the um, travel lodge. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be hideous. Um, and I turned up. 
and he said could you read for me and of course I did the whole thing I can still remember the, the speeches from steaming things like you know see we was having it the other night and I was really getting into it you know enjoying myself and all of a sudden he's come old up I says what about me I won't go on because it gets really filthy but you know as soon as I opened my mouth Rodney said you've got the job because going back to the comprehensive school if I'd have gone to a grammar school they'd all have been talking like this darling and you know and and who's your father and what do you do well in the comprehensive school it wasn't like that it was everybody a melting pot as I said and I was mixing with wonderful cockney people so I knew that sound so well and I I was brought up in that area anyway my whole family are cockney so of course I could do it standing on my head and I remember saying to him what you mean you want me to do the role he said yes I said so you, you don't want me to take my clothes off and he said no, this isn't a play about taking your clothes off this is a, a really a, a mark on society and I said but the thing is Rodney when you see my body you won't want me wow the scars yeah, yeah of course all yeah. I could think of was if he wants me to take my clothes off he'll take one look at my body and say well you can't have that you're too ugly it's terrible what women do to ourselves. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and, course, and when you're an actor as well. Yeah. yeah. So I told him about the scars. I said, you, you won't want me because I've had my a kidney removed and, and an extra ureter and I, I was only supposed to have one scar, but I've got two. And he said, that's nonsense, Amanda. I want you to, for the role. Brilliant. But even then, I still was covering it up with makeup until that doctor said, "Oh, what a marvelous scar!" <laughs> <laughs> uh, Prisoner, uh, Calendar Girls, and Steaming casts of all women. Uh, Calendar Girls came much later. That yeah, was, yeah, uh, but, but yes. they're all female casts. You're, yes. you're in a, a bunch. Yes. Of, yeah. Is that a liberating experience? When and you're... I did another another play called Female Transport. Right. In I think it was the Pram Factory. Again, it was all about female prisoners. Coming out from England. To Australia. Mm. That's a good play, yeah. Female Transport. Yes, it is, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> Being in a, a cast of all women. Yeah. Is that a liberating experience? Oh, no, it's far more liberating if you've got men. <laughs> <laughs> I think oh, there's no, a I theme to men. this conversation. Yeah, is there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I've never thought... I've never, Right. No one's ever just asked a bunch me of that. Colleagues, yeah, I actors. have wonderful mm. friends, female friends, mm. and wonderful male friends too. I'm I'm very blessed with my because of course I don't have any family here. Yeah. Um, I've got some relatives by marriage in Perth, and they're fabulous. Yeah. The Bannisters, they're called. Right. <laughs> Great names. Yeah, it's fabulous. Yeah. Amanda, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. Oh dear, I think I've opened up far too much. Oh no, not at all. Not at all. I haven't told you half of it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there's a book in you? Yes. Yeah? Um, Alan and Unwin asked me to write one years and years and years ago, but I was so busy I couldn't do it. I've got time now. I've got to wait for a few people to die, and I don't mean my dad. I mean a few actors (laughs) to tell some stories. (laughs) But, um, yes. Well, we look forward to reading it when it comes out. I think I've told it all, and I've told all the best bits. (laughs) No, I haven't. No, you haven't. You haven't. Thank it's, you. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much.
Let's hope that we can see Coral Brown, this effing lady, further afield in other cities. A fabulous story of one of this country's greatest stars and performed by another of our great stars, my guest today, Amanda Muggleton. Thanks for your company in this episode of The Stages Podcast. It is always a pleasure. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time.